One of the interesting things about being a priest is that you will wear a uniform that tells everyone you are a priest. And so people will often approach you with questions about all sorts of things. One of the ones I get frequently now is, is Pope Francis going to change dot, dot, dot? Sometimes we priests joke amongst ourselves about the odd questions that we are asked by random people. But it's probably similar for doctors, too. I have friends who tell me that once they tell someone they are a medical doctor, people who seconds ago were complete strangers are asking them to look at birthmarks and moles. Could that be cancer? <laughs> well, when I was a lawyer, the question I got most was, is going to court anything like such-and-such such TV show or movie? And I had to tell them, sadly, no. It was interesting and challenging in its own way, but it wasn't like A Few Good Men or L.A. Law or Ally McBeal or any of those other shows. But there's a reason why courtroom dramas feature so heavily on TV or on the big screen. They're interesting because they tell a story, but they do it through the stilted lens of courtroom procedure. It's dramatic because it forces us to think about and view each fact put into evidence in a much more detailed way than we do in real life. In real life, we simply assume as true a lot of the facts we hear or read unless we have a good reason to think otherwise. In a courtroom, a foundation has to be laid for almost everything, no matter how obvious. In this one respect, courtroom dramas mimic real life, litig real life litigation. It's one of the hardest things for a young attorney to learn because despite all of your legal training, the way evidence is admitted in court is so counterintuitive to the way we argue or come to conclusions in real life. Almost every litigator who's actually tried cases in court has war stories from their rookie days of going to trial armed with all of the law and the facts on their side and failing miserably because they could not present the evidence in a way that was admissible under the rules of evidence. And conversely, every veteran litigator can probably tell you a story about when they gypped a young lawyer out of a case they should have won by shrewdly manipulating the rules of evidence against them. One of the things that you learn very quickly is that virtually every fact or piece of evidence has to be established by the testimony of a witness who has first-hand knowledge of it. As a lawyer, you can't say, for example, here's this piece of paper, and say to the judge or jury, Your Honor, or ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is the contract signed between my client and the opposing party, and the other side was required to deliver the widgets by September 1st. It says it right here. Intuitively, that's the way we would argue something in real life. But in the courtroom, you have to have a witness there just to testify under oath that they know from their own firsthand knowledge that this document is, in fact, the contract in question. Otherwise, without the witness, the contract doesn't become a piece of evidence in the case. Every fact must be established by a person who can testify to that fact. We see this in the rite of baptism. The priest or deacon says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit. Even if a baptism is done irregularly by some other person, it is only valid if they say this formula. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There needs to be a person testifying to the fact of the baptism. But it's different from a court of law. In court, we would need testimony in order to admit the fact that the baptism took place. But in the case of the baptism itself, the word or testimony of the minister as to what is being done is necessary for the baptism to happen at all. There needs to be a witness who will testify to make present the reality of God's grace. Today we celebrate the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to understand some key facts. The baptism that John was offering to his followers and then to Jesus was not baptism as we experience it today. It was not baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Because at that point, John and his followers and even the followers of Jesus did not have the Trinity revealed to them. It is only later in Matthew 28 when the resurrected Jesus tells his followers, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that the sacrament of baptism is actually inaugurated. Rather, the baptism of John, as it is referred to in scriptures, was a simple ceremonial washing, representing repentance for sin in order to prepare people to receive Christ. In the book of Acts, Paul evangelizes a community in Ephesus that had earlier received the teachings of John the Baptist and had been baptized as he had instructed. But they had to be baptized again, now in the name of the Lord Jesus, which is Paul's shorthand way of referring to all three persons of the Trinity. But even if the baptism that Jesus received was only for repentance, the fact that he was baptized at all might seem bizarre. What did Jesus, the Son of God, have to repent of? But Jesus' baptism is meant for us as a kind of testimony. It prefigures the Trinitarian baptism that we receive as Christians by testifying and giving the examples of its essential elements being born again of water by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus present, of course, because he is the one being baptized. But then we have the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And we have the Father appearing as a voice, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. We have the concrete presence of the three persons of the Trinity, each, in effect, testifying by their presence that the sacrament of baptism will become the foundation of the Christian life. That we, too, when we are baptized, become pleasing to the Father, meaning freed from sin and justified in his sight by the waters of baptism. In the second reading, St. John says, There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are of one accord. I think he's talking about baptism. The three are the three persons of the Trinity. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit, of course. 
The blood is Christ, because Christ became flesh. And the water is the Father, because water represents creation, judgment, forgiveness, and regeneration, all qualities associated with God the Father. Without baptism, we could have known about the Trinity insofar as it is talked about in Scripture. We could have marveled at the Trinity. We could have theorized about the nature of the Trinity. But just like facts have to be admitted into evidence to be established as legal facts, the mystery of the Trinity would simply have been a fact external to us without the testimony provided in baptism that we are now made a part of the Trinity by our baptism. The Trinity comes to dwell in us. We enjoy in our being some small indwelling of the ultimate mystery, three divine persons lovingly united as one God. But there is another reality that we have to consider as well, something that I hinted at earlier. It is the persons of the Trinity who are testifying at baptism. And the justification produced by baptism is the work of God, not of men. Yet, the minister of baptism, usually a priest or deacon, but anybody in an emergency, plays a part by giving their voice to the Trinity, to giving their voice to this testimony. We might feel like we are not anything special, but anybody, even in an emergency, a non-Christian, could baptize someone else. What a remarkable power that God has put in almost anyone's hands. Like John the Baptist, our testimony establishes something greater than ourselves. One mightier than I is coming after me. So long as we can pour water and say the words of the baptismal formula. If we do that, we have the guarantee from God that it will be effective in ransoming ransoming that soul from sin. Because it says, my word shall not return to me void, but shall do my will, achieving the end for which I sent it. Understanding this is key to understanding the very nature of the church that God created. The church is a community of witnesses to the faith that we have received. Firstly, of course, the church is the guardian of scripture and tradition and the sacraments. But each of us individually as Christians, on account of our baptism, serves as a witness to Christ. Our testimony about Christ makes Christ real to others. If we baptize, but in many other respects, every time we witness to our faith, we are testifying for Christ. And in doing so, we make make Christ present in the world. We receive and hand on the faith that the community of Christ is strengthened and extended through space and time. In the strictest sense, God doesn't need our help. He could have spread his word probably through some other means. But because of his love for us, he desires to dignify us. He makes it so that we can become cooperators in the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, that our lowly selves can draw upon the ultimate power that created the universe, making it so that we magnify the life of the Trinity in our very selves. 
And we do so in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.